Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Garrett Long of Leap Year, a California-based company that has a claim to having solved the data privacy problem. Leapier's software is able to give peace of mind to owners of large data sets by ensuring that they cannot be reverse engineered to reveal, for example, the personal data of individuals. This means companies are able to release the full value in their data by selling it to investors as alternative data, among other things. I began by asking Garrett how he first got involved with Leapier. Yeah, sure, Mark. Thanks. So, yeah, I met uh, the Leapier team, Ishan and Colton and Chris, the uh, three founders of the company, actually five years ago when they had first started uh, bringing this really interesting idea to market, which is, you know, generally, how do we match the trend of needing to use data right across all the large corporates and, of course, the investing space, while at the same time ensuring the privacy of individuals and entities in that data set. And uh, it was a really interesting topic at the time. It's like five years ago. And met them through one of my mentors uh, and actually did some go-to-market work uh, strategy for them back then and um, had the opportunity to join them 18 months ago uh, and lead some of our business initiatives here. Uh, and again, the company has been really um, in the, at the forefront of solving this dual goal of, of data use and data privacy. So yeah, it's quite an interesting space and, and they're doing a lot of innovation that I'm sure we'll talk about there in the podcast today. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a wonderful journey so far. Where's the where's the company based again? So we're based out of San Francisco. Uh, we're a team of about sixty. Uh, we have uh, go-to-market teams in New York City and also in the UK, and uh, we have projects actually going around the world today. So it's it's pretty good company. Most but most of the tech and engineering is here in San Francisco. You haven't been tempted to to move to Austin yet. It seems I'm getting all the chat that um, there's a lot of a lot of moving from from California to Austin. Which let me just mention, I I did spend two years in Austin myself, so I've got some 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 meat in the game. I think the uh, the the statement that everyone's leaving California is a bit overrated, based on my neighborhood at least. <laughs> it's so alongside think... the it's alongside the idea that New York is dead, is it? Exactly. You got it. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so you're based out of San Francisco. Is that where it started? Like what's the, is there a Californian link? Uh, actually, yeah. I mean, the, the team was here just out of, uh, I think the choice to be near the, the tech center of the United States. And uh, we were bringing some really interesting cutting edge uh, mathematics and technology to, to the world. Right. And we needed to be able to uh, draw from a talent pool that was here in the Bay Area. I think that was some of the initial uh, reasons to be here. And uh, we started actually in Berkeley, uh, near UC Berkeley, and then uh, have mm. since moved to San Francisco. Great. Okay. And so um, so let's introduce the company. What does, what does Leap Year do? Sure, that's great. So Leap Year um, provides software to the marketplace uh, that enables the statistical analysis of data sets while ensuring the privacy of individuals and entities in that data. Uh, we are a company that's focused in a, uh, a very interesting corner of the cryptography world called differential privacy. Uh, differential privacy is a standard of privacy that was invented actually almost 20 years ago uh, with the explicit purpose of setting a standard for what it means to keep something private when you do analytics on that data. And over the last 20 years, uh, a lot of research has been done at a lot of the major uh, academic institutions in the United States and around the world on this topic. 
of how do you design algorithms that meet that standard. And Leapier has spent the last five years uh, basically building a commercial platform that achieves that standard for the entire analytics workflow. So I think interestingly, we started out with a model of a trustless analyst, right? How do I allow an analyst to work with data sets while ensuring I don't have to trust that person? And I think it's very interesting for the alt data space. We can tie that in in a little bit, but um, this idea that I'm allowing access to a data asset while having an assurance that that access will not breach any regulatory constructs or privacy of the individuals in that data set. And so we've been on this journey for five years um, and we've uh, brought that platform into production at some of the largest banks, life sciences, data companies in the world uh, and are paving the way, I think, for what will be a, a really widespread adoption of this technique to protect data. Okay, so um, differential privacy suggests differentiating between one thing and another. Can you, like, are you able to unpack that? Why differential? So differential privacy, I think at the high level to your question is, I can do an analysis on a data set and I cannot tell, Mark, if you are in or not in the data set, right? So, so imagine you're a patient in a healthcare data set and I'm doing analysis on readmission rates versus income. Right? And I want to do that analysis in such a way that I, I can learn nothing about you as an individual. And so the differential privacy part comes in and the ability to not discriminate that you are in or not in the data set. And that was the standard of privacy, effectively plausible deniability that I, I ensure that an analyst cannot tell that fact. Uh, and then once I've achieved that standard, I can go from there and make all kinds of interesting algorithms and expansions on that concept to allow pretty complex uh, work to be done while ensuring that underlying principle. So this is obviously incredibly hot right now, and particularly, I want to say, and, and, and I'd be interested in your views, but the kind of the high watermark of data being freely used in potentially dangerous ways might have been, you know, um, the perhaps Cambridge Analytica scam, scandal around the US election, something like that, when the the kind of the scales fell from our consumer eyelids a little bit where we'd suddenly realized that there was a lot of risk in data being um at like you know being freely in people's hands and could be reverse engineered etc um and it's interesting to me that this you're saying differential privacy goes back 20 years so there was there was a kind of there was the the fledgling stages of this of this of this problem or of this market uh, at least 15, 16 years before people were thinking about it. Are you are you aware of kind of the development of, of how this problem has developed? Well, you know, I, I can give my personal observations that, you know, I think the challenge in particular for the technology area of differential privacy was proposing a standard of privacy is one thing, right? And then writing the mathematics that achieve that standard is a second thing, right? And so over the last 15, 18 years, a host of papers and, and research in this area, literally thousands of papers have been written on how to write a sum such that it achieves the standard and how do you write a linear regression such that it achieves the standard um, and, and on and on. And so it's been a compendium of a lot of people's work to explore this space. And then the next step has been how do we create a platform that is accessible and commercially available, right? So, so Mark, like as an example, for several year, years, large companies like Apple and Google 
and LinkedIn have been using differentially private techniques inside their companies to protect our data. And it's not something that they talk about every day, but if you do a quick search on Apple differential privacy, you will see that on the handset, they use this technique to protect information coming back to Apple for analysis. And so I think that this has been uh, a progression of uh, you know, use in the world today. And I think the time is now for really this platform and this type of approach to be more widespread, right? We now have the mathematics that support basic statistical inquiry, uh, regressions and machine learning models as well that can all be done differentially private. Mm. So what your, so what Leap Year does broadly then to, to, um, to, to perhaps repeat you is to, um, to take a data set which has enough uh, details in it that hypothetically somebody could reverse engineer and say, look, this is Mark Fleming Williams and he's in London, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what your company does is it scrambles it enough that it remains useful, perhaps on a kind of aggregated, as an aggregated data set, but is completely unreverse engineerable. That's your, that's that your, your, your unreverse engineerable technicians. Well, that, that's, that's one way to say it. Let me, let me propose it slightly differently, which is when the analyst gets access to a data set through leap year, what's actually happening is we're not changing the data at all. And this is actually part of the story for the alt data universe, right? So just, just tying to the alternative data space for a second, the typical workflows today, right, have a company, a data owner, or some type of intermediary in that space preparing data for use. And in that preparation of data, what they typically do is follow techniques to somehow anonymize or mask that data, right? That's, those are common techniques to either remove columns or aggregate fields such that I, I achieve a, a, a level of quote unquote privacy, right? The problem in, in that step, there are many which we can unpack, but the first one I want to address here, Mark, is um, you remove value when you do that, right? So by removing certain information like race or age or you know condition codes or whatever the, the thing may be, you remove value. And so by removing value, therefore uh, devalue the data set. So on mm -hmm. both sides of this equation, the data owner has uh, a decreased ability to commercialize that data. And the analyst on the other side has less ability to draw insights because that information has been removed. Uh, and, and worse, I think, Mark, is that most of these techniques, you know, anonymization and aggregation and masking uh, have been shown over the last half dozen years to effectively not be privacy protecting, right? I can show many studies where researchers have attacked a supposedly anonymous data set and with very little information, you know, reconstruct upwards of 80 and 90% of the individuals in the data set. Sure. Um, and so, you know, what Leap Year is really doing here is slightly different in that we are putting a piece of software between the analyst and the data. And the purpose of the software actually is to look at the query that the analyst is asking for and then make a decision of how to protect the privacy of that query itself at the time of, of interrogation. And so we can make an active, you know, uh, active and accurate assessment of privacy in the moment without ever changing the data. And in fact, our, our thinking here, and I think it's an important thing to note out is we don't change the data, but we actually change the computation slightly. And so, mm. you know, in, in, a, in a qualitative way, 
an analyst might ask for a mean of an age column, right? And, that, and the true mean is 50. Uh, what, what Leap Year will do is apply differentially private techniques to the mean calculation itself and return, let's say 49.8. And we will also give a range of uh, statistical variation around that answer. So the analyst understands uh, there is a small price of privacy, right? And that price of privacy can be quantified and shared and tracked. And so now we're moving from a regime of uh, kind of what I would call heuristics-based privacy, right? Kind of almost like hope and pray, like I'm going to remove some things and hopefully no one will be certain to near this, to an active deterministic level of privacy, meaning I can ensure you and I can show you the math and the quantitative aspects of that math that protect the privacy of this query. So it's a little bit different than scrambling the data. It's actually specifically helping the analysts do their work with privacy on the spot. Are you, is your software judging the query as well? Is it looking at the query and say, no, no, we can't tell him that because he's going to be able to work it out from that. Ah, <laughs> so, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. So yeah, the, the answer, the short answer is yes, actually. Um, the system does need to be aware of the context of this query, right? So if I ask for a mean query of a record of one, that's a privacy revealing query. Right. I, if I ask for that mean, I'm going to get yeah. one person's age. And so the platform does have to know that. And um, we do that in an active way. Uh, and I think maybe more interestingly is uh, thinking about the combinations of queries that might, you know, release some private information. So in that way, if an analyst says, well, give me the mean age of a thousand people. And then the next query is give me the mean age of 999 of those same thousand people. The difference between those queries reveals something about the one person left out, right? So I have to be very thoughtful in designing a piece of software that can consider those cases. There's all kinds of layers you go from there. Yeah, across across analysts, across you know tables and things like that as well. But in the in the in the example that you just stated, not only do you need to be wary of what your analyst is asking, but you also need to be wary about what you've already told that analyst. And you also need to be wary about that analyst getting on another machine and asking you know because there's a sequence of questions potentially we may be getting a bit technical but you know he could uh, he could ask 10 or 15 questions which all together could reveal stuff so that's right so i think that that we call that the composition of queries mark so what it what is what is the set of queries that are leaking information about this data set keeping track of that and ensuring that we you know understand it and then actually can shut off access if we have to Right. And the system does that automatically. OK. OK. So you guys are the specialists in in essentially um, adding enough uh, fuzz to a data set that uh, people won't be able to extract dangerous amounts of information, but maintaining it value enough in the information that it that it still is 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 worth using. And, you know, you can extract all the value that that data contains these days. Um, so how do you get used? How do you fit into a process? And, and perhaps let's, let's talk about alternative data if we can. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the alternative data space is a great example of really a trustless analyst, right? So by definition, the alt data space involves two parties, sometimes three parties, that don't have a trusted relationship. So, you know, if we make the construct where I'm a data owner and I 
pass my data to you as an analyst and you're in a different company and using the data for a different purpose, I think by definition, we can say that's trustless, right? And so the, the way we got involved with Altbeta was, um, you know, the space is actually very exciting, uh, but it is maturing, right? And so I'm sure you've talked to folks in, in your series of podcasts that share a bit of the commoditization of data, right? And now we've got data sets in the marketplace, similar data sets being offered by multiple companies all following the same processes, right, to come to market. And by definition, that information gets baked into, you know, if we're talking about, you know, valuing equities, uh, that pricing gets into the market, right, and baked into anything uh, that the analysts might do. And so um, we were coming to this market with an idea of there must be high value data sets that have never come to market. And that's where it started, right? So just data sets that were considered too sensitive to be brought to market because the existing kind of techniques to protect privacy candidly don't work, right? And and we did find that to be true, actually, Mark. And we've we found interesting data sets that because of the mathematical rigor of the approach are are being brought to market today, uh, which really represents an interesting evolution, I think, in all data, right? Which is how do we move to a privacy protected all data space that allows better value? Just to just to step in, so what you're what you're describing is perhaps a, a company which sells something on the internet, or you know, so a big company which has a day job, um, sure. and they they have a large data set which they have access to, of you know all their customers' data, for example, and they probably they might be aware they've got a huge data set, but they they might be thinking we are at risk of um, exposing our customers if we do anything with this data set. So we should keep it within our company in order to protect our customers. And what, what you can do is you can almost make it alternative data by go to that company and, and tell them that with your, you know, with your, with your supervision, you can make this data set um, usable and release the value of it without, um, without, uh, uh, putting anyone at risk of of being exposed uh, or, or revealed as as for who they are, um, so you're you're kind of creating alternative data in that way or, or enabling it. That's right. You you got it exactly right. So, you know, I think everybody understands this concept of being a data driven organization, right? And so, every company in the world, some larger than others, are collecting data about interesting things. Uh, and exactly as you said, there's been. I think rightly so, reticence to bring some data to market, either because of regulatory constructs or confusion, right? Can I bring this data to market? Some of its reputational risk, like how do I feel about this, uh, sending it to market? And yet there's an over, overarching demand for this type of information to come to market, right? So the balancing of those two pieces of the equation are, are quite important. And you know we play a small part in that ecosystem uh, you know, enabling really what we feel is like the first rigorous way to, you know, consider sharing data uh, for commercial gain while ensuring the privacy and confidentiality of people in that data set and entities, by the way, it doesn't have to be only people. Sure. Um, sorry to ask a severe question, but uh, what is there? Is there a kind of independent certificate or independent recognition that what you guys do really does do that job? Good question. So the short answer is yes. Um, and it is a really interesting thing to unpack just a little bit in that you have to think about several things here, right? So we think about first the 
accuracy of our implementation, right? So did we really do the math correctly to achieve the standards of differential privacy? And so from that perspective, we have external experts validate our math. Like we literally unlock the code and show them the algorithms so that they can verify you know, with expertise that we've done the right thing. A second thing is um, enterprise readiness. So like, you know, a, a question we often get asked is, well, there's some fledgling differential privacy open source projects, right? So can't I just use something like that? Uh, but when you think about the enterprise interactions here, Mark, like how do I ensure the analyst goes through a platform versus loading an open source package, right? If I don't enforce behavior, I can't enforce privacy. So we also have TAD built a large software capability, right? That it will stand up to the testings of the largest banks and pharmaceuticals in the world. And we've done that uh, time and time again. Um, and so we have these kind of two things, which are the accuracy of the implementation, the um, enterprise grade readiness of the platform. And then we've exposed that together to a set of people in the regulatory space, right? So does this help a company achieve HIPAA compliance, CCPA compliance, GDPR compliance, right? And so we routinely expose our platform to experts that then determine that in fact, yes, the platform achieves those standards. And so we've gone through that process. And I think it's a really important question that you ask to the ability to prove that and we can, and we have attestations and letters and you know, all the cert uh, certificates that make sense in that context. So just to understand from my side how this works, so you, obviously the European Union has brought in GDPR regulations to protect right. against privacy. Um, and so as part of that, have they got a panel of experts who judge whether companies are within or outside the GDPR regulations? And those are the people who you need to talk to. How, how, does, how, does, that, how does that work? How are, they, how, how, how are they holding you accountable? Sure. So I think there's two parts here. So the first is the, the authors of the GDPR regulations, right? Uh, and in their descriptions of uh, the, regula the regulatory framework and its, its intent, actually, the GDPR commission calls out differential privacy as a technique to achieve the standard, as the best way, actually, by the way. Nice. Um, not us particularly, but just the approach in general. Uh, sure. And then we we work with independent experts. So there are people that's, you know, their career is effectively doing attestations about approaches that achieve GDPR in this case. So they don't per se work for like the GDPR Commission or the European Union Commission, but they are experts in this space and can provide, you know, validation that the platform works. It's, it's an interesting problem for us because we are not a data owner, right? So as a company, we don't we don't have to submit to GDPR because we don't own the data, but our software platform mm. works in that environment. So this little kind of interesting space where, you know, we have to allow the experts to show that our platform works. And we've done that with our clients in, in Europe for sure. And I mean, you, you, and presumably it helps to have GDPR kind of accreditation in order to show that to potential clients and say, you know, this, this is proof that it works rather than don't just take our word for it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the third party proof, you know, and very interestingly, there's been a lot of great coverage in the mass media. You know, you see MIT technology uh, review talking about differential privacy, Forbes, um, you see headline news in New York Times about this topic. 
Um, you also see independent analysts like Gartner and others talking about differential privacy as you know an approach to all this space. So I think there's a lot of momentum building behind the behind the topic in general. Okay. Um, and so I slightly, I slightly detoured you because I felt like we, we, I should have, uh, I wanted to talk about the regulatory aspect. But back on the alternative data, do you are there any examples of of companies which um, didn't know they had this this goldmine of data or, or were wary of using it? Is there anyone you can mention that you've actually been able to uh, to bring to market in that way? Yeah, um, we don't generally talk uh, about company names, but like, for example, um, I'll just say one of the top 10 healthcare companies in the US, uh, you know, we're bringing data to market with on them, uh, a second that's in the top 20 uh, healthcare companies. And then we're currently in, in the pipeline, several companies that are bringing, you know, consumer based information about spending patterns and things like that to market as well. So there are, you know, I think really solid examples of this where these data sets were on quote unquote on the shelf uh, and being brought to market. And again, highly valued because of a few different aspects. If you don't mind, I, I would love to just unpack a little bit about, you know, it's not only just a getting the access, but I think there's a couple other things about the alt data kind of workflow that's interesting to highlight, if you don't mind, and, oh, I, and I'll just bring please. them up and get your opinion. So, you know, the, the thing, Mark, that we see is like the traditional approach to protecting this this data, right, before kind of our entry to this marketplace was, you know, some party will anonymize the data for lack of a better word, clean it, right? And then typically that data then gets shipped to the data purchaser, you know, and that might be shipped in like an Excel file or a CSV or some type of other format. Mm. And in this process, Mark, we see two risks, right? The first risk is that you've relying on an anonymization process that doesn't actually protect privacy, which we've already talked about. And it also devalues the data. But then we also have now released the asset to a third party, right? And so you have this kind of interesting downstream effect of like, we have contracts about what the person's doing with that data, but can we rely on contracts? Should we trust this scenario, right? Where the world has really moved on um, to an API driven world, right? So why can't we give the analyst an API access to my data rather than shipping files around the world, right? And so the other thing to say about an approach like Leap Year is that's exactly what we do. We actually layer into the data owner systems and then the data owner now can just give an API access. So in this way, the data owner retains complete control from both a security and a privacy point of view on their data asset, right? And the analyst transforms their relationship instead of working in CSVs and Excels, they have, in our case, a, a Python-driven access to interactive data science. Uh, and they can go about their day building models, building workflows, uh, just as they would normally. Uh, and so that's another part of this workflow we see as kind of, at this point, needing a little bit of modification and, and modernization, right? Like, let's, let's take advantage of the connected world uh, and having secure APIs and having ways to access those APIs in a rational and private way, such that I can retain control of an asset as well. Does that make sense to you? It does. It reminds me a little bit of um, an idea which I heard a few years ago, which I haven't haven't heard heard so recently talked about, but would Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the, of the World Wide Web, um, one of his new ideas I, I remember reading about was that one solution to the data problem um and you know the the privacy problem was that um 
everyone would own their own data. Um, and so it, they, everyone would have a little portfolio of their own data. So it wouldn't belong to, you know, Amazon and Google, et cetera. And actually it would be reclaimed by the people who could then um, make money off their own off their own back type thing they could they could make their own money off their own data and it seems like it just reminds me because you seem to be describing the data staying in one in one place and and people who want it getting access to it through your software um rather than the data being shipped around and turning up at people's being sold as a product it's it's more access to it um and you kind of enable that right yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting i mean the 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 evolution of all this, like to basically each person being a data owner is, is obviously very intriguing. It's, you know, it's not something um, I think is in, in the short term roadmap for anybody just because it's very challenging. Could you imagine a buy side asset management firm having to source data from a hundred million different people, right? So there's some go to market challenges that might, you know, from a, from an individual point of view, I like the idea of like, if, if some company is going to monetize me that I get a slice of that, I, I think that's a, like a, a aspirational goal but the operationalization of all this happens a lot because there are central points of collection right there are you know a, a database of information that is meaningful from a statistical analysis and how do i use that information to drive an insight and right so if i'm if i'm a if i'm a hospital and i'm a and i'm a pharma and i'm creating a data relationship the hospital serves the purpose of having kind of longitudinal view of all my patients at once and that's useful for the pharma because they're doing statistical inquiry about drug effectiveness, right? If the pharma had to contact each one of us, uh, that's actually what, why clinical trials came into being and why contract research organizations exist because it's a very hard problem to solve. So I think, I think long-term aspiration, it's a pretty cool idea. I think in the, in the short yeah. term, the real business constraints would, would make that challenging. All right. Unlucky Tim Berners-Lee, perhaps. <laughs> um, but so, and do you have any other um, potential use cases? Yeah, well, uh, yeah. So, Mark, I think that there's a couple of ways to think about this. So uh, alternative data, in my mind, has always kind of been a relationship between um, asset managers and buy-side firms, right? Acquiring data to drive investment strategies. I think that's kind of the, the natural place to think about all data and, you know, using these signals to, to drive investments. And I think when, when you break it down, as you did a little bit earlier, um, there's the active privacy of protecting a data set, they're securing data set, they're sharing data sets and all those things. And then when you, when you think just one step outside of just that universe, right? How do we effectively share data all around the world, right? So if if I have this ability to have an assured and understood level of privacy, what would I do, right? So that's kind of the question is, what would I do if I could do this in a privacy-preserving privacy and regulated, regulated uh, regulatory compliant kind of way, right? And so that's where we see these ideas of new data sets coming to market and being unlocked. That's where we see some of our clients actually going to data owners and i think this is a great example in the life sciences space where pharmaceuticals do need access to data to do their work right to do their work more effectively with with more expedience and more accuracy to create better therapies um, and it's traditionally very hard to generate access to that data set so we actually see network effects where people are now taking our technology and the idea of our technology to a data owner and saying hey if we did it like this does that work for you? And so I think we're starting to see a little bit of that network effect. And, you know, we're seeing companies say, 
if this is the way we're going to, you're going to analyze my data, it's the only way I want you to do it. Right. So I think that there's a very specific set of people and companies starting to help kind of build this trend into something meaningful. Sure. So, and what's the, what's, what does tomorrow hold? What's the, what's the future? It sounds like you're, it sounds to me like you're kind of ushering in the future in terms of the future of privacy, but what, yeah. what do you think the next steps kind of almost beyond, beyond where you're at now um, will be? Yeah. So I think that, you know, let me speak specifically to the alt data space and then maybe a little bit more generally. So I think sure. the alt data space as it, as it starts to suffer a bit of commoditization, right. will need to move to a, a more secure and more valuable approach, right? So we will have to get data owners comfortable with technology like this and how they think about the opportunities to safely and appropriately create commercial value from their data assets, right? So that's one part of the side. And the other side is data purchasers, right? To get them to become more sophisticated and comfortable with how they think about accessing data. So. I think from an all data point of view, uh, you know, you, you do definitely see coverage in the press and, and, and articles about the commoditization aspects. And I think Leap Year brings an interesting counterforce to commoditization, right? We can bring new data and interesting data. And in fact, even in some of the data sets that are already in market, because of the privacy protections, we can put information back to the data set, right? So it, you, you might have stripped out age, you might have stripped out five digit zip code we can mm. put that information back, right? So we, we add value back to the market. So we're helping to grow, you know, the TAM, if you will, of this entire alt data space. And I think that's exciting. And I think it's because of the, the approach and because the ability to tr not trust the analysts, to never ship my data, to have third party proof of compliance that helps all those things. So possibly, I mean, you could be the... You could be the re the return to the to the mean in a way, in that we had complete freedom of privacy up until a certain point, and then we've had a back we've seen a backlash, um, right. and we're seeing things like GDPR. And you guys uh, strike me as potentially a way in which we return to more reasonableness. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that, that's a good way to think about it. And I would say that you know when we talk about like kind of big trends, right? two big secular trends, which is the need to be data-driven, right? So every company now has a, a data strategy, right? And they're trying to figure out how to safely collect and derive commercial value. And, and that doesn't mean like literally dollars for access, but it means data products and data insights and right, creating new things from the data they're collecting. Uh, and we have the other secular trend, which is the concern and need for privacy. And those two things will be in conflict from here on. I, I don't think that there's, you know, a, a scenario where people don't want things to be private. And I don't think there's a scenario where corporates don't need to use data to become more successful. And so I think your, your characterization of the extremes, which is do anything you want with my data, that's no good for one reason. Don't do anything with data, that's no good for another reason, right? But how do I hit, hit middle that and I hit the ability to get effective value out of data while ensuring privacy is exactly where we stand. And I think your, your analogy there is, is spot on. It's um, it's it's very Hegelian. Hegel is very much about thesis followed by antithesis followed by synthesis, and mm -hmm. that's what you guys are. You're you're synthesis. You're the you're the bit which combines the two in a in a positive way. So I've that's managed right. to get a finally managed to get a Hegel reference into my podcast. I'm very happy. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, Garrett, I think that's been really interesting. Um, I think, as I say, I think it's a unique and exciting prospect. And in a way, you're kind of 
you're 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 covering an entire market because because you're solving a problem for an entire market. You know, the privacy question has been so dominant and such a such a such a prevalent um, worry um, for anyone right. in data that um, that you guys are kind of single handedly soothing it. So um, so I think yeah, you're you guys are here heroes. And, oh, well. <laughs> um, and, and, and Godspeed to you. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the chance to get to talk to you about this topic. And um, it's really, really great to have uh, folks like you helping to bring, you know, rational thoughts to these spaces. So thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent.